Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. During each program, Tim will take you behind the scenes and share stories and memories from his long career in the world of IndyCar competition. With seven championship rings to his credit, Tim not only understands auto racing history, he has lived it. And now, for the most famous words in racing history. Drivers! Start your engines! It's always great to hear those cries from the announcers of starting those engines. And of course, Tim Coffin is familiar with that. And on this episode, we're going to take Tim a little ways back in time. But I did want to let all the listeners know that if you'd like to be the very first one on your block to be able to listen to these podcasts, just go to the homepage of thesportshistorynetwork.com. Look for the Tim Coffeen site, and you can subscribe, and it's free and easy to do. And also, if you have any comments for Tim or you have any questions, also go to the same place. You can either leave a voice message or a, a written message, and who knows? Maybe Tim will address your question. He likely will on one of the next episodes. And welcome back. I'm Joe Ziemba. I'm here to uh, work with Tim Coffeen as we get through some of his experiences in IndyCar racing. And we thought we would start maybe back uh, way back when, when Tim got involved. Of course, he reached the top of IndyCar racing, flying to Australia, having a beer or two with Paul Newman, entertaining entertainers. But with a great success story and through great determination, Tim, you started somewhere. And I'd like just to ask you now, and again, my name's Joe Ziemba, Tim Coffeen's cousin. When did your own race car driving career start? Well, Joe, I grew up uh, in Indianapolis, as I said before, and uh, I grew up uh, down the street from five brothers, the Coogan brothers, and as kids, uh, we raced bicycles. Uh, we built go-karts out of uh, old ironing boards with lawnmower engines on them, anything we could get our hands on uh, to race. Uh, and then in high school, I hung around the track uh, at Indy. Uh, I had raced motorcycles a little bit. I had a motocross bike I raced, but I got to be, I had jobs in racing, working on sprint cars and busting tires for a good year at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I got to my mid twenties, I was 25 and I had still never got to race anything. And there's always this underlying question in your mind. Uh, you think you can do it, but just, you don't know until I wanted to race sprint cars, which, uh, are they're pretty wild west racing machines, a lot of horsepower, real light. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. My heroes race sprint cars, and I wanted to be a sprint car racer. 
my first opportunity to drive a sprint car came. Uh, Robin Miller, the journalist, uh, he, he raced USAC midgets, and there was a two two race event in Erie, Colorado in August of 78. So he didn't have anybody to help him. So I rode over to Denver with Robin to race Erie, which is a super fast half mile high bank dirt track there. And he ran one night and uh, we had a motel room and the phone rang the next morning and Robin answered it and said, Fino, it's for you. And it was Steve Chassis, who was a, Steve ran at Indianapolis. Uh, he was a, he won a lot of USAC sprint car races. He was stood on the gas race car driver. And he said, Timmy, he says, I talked to one of the guys, uh, older guys that works at this race shop, and he's got a sprint car. And I talked him into letting you drive that car tomorrow night at Bloomington, Indiana. And I promised him if you crashed it, I'll fix it. So he said, if you don't get back here tomorrow to drive that car, I'll never help you again. And hung up. And I thought to myself, well, that opportunity just went down the toilet. I'm a thousand miles from, from home. No way to get, you know, probably had $25 in my pocket. And I hung up the phone, I guess, with a forlorn look on my face. And Robin said, what's going on, Fino? Give me the straight shot. And I told him what Steve said. And he just towed us. It's a 2,000-mile round trip to Denver from Indianapolis. And we towed all the way out there and ran one night. And he looked at me and he said, I'm taking you home. You're going to race tomorrow night. And he gave up a whole night. He drove 2,000 miles around trip, on a, and he took me back to Indianapolis so I could race. And uh, it was down in Bloomington, Indiana, a quarter-mile uh, bull ring, Indiana clay oval. And it was a big, big show. There was all the local hot shots were there. I had Bubby Jones as a good friend of mine, a magnificent race car driver, and chassis came. Bubby came, Bobby Grimm Jr. was there, Robin came, Pat Beckley, another friend of mine, and I had quite a crowd around me the first time I ever drove her, and I had never driven anything before, ever. I'll never forget, I was sitting in the car uh, with Sprint Car, you have to lock the thing in gear, it doesn't have an onboard starter, and you lock the car in gear, and a truck hits you in the ass and pushes you away, and you hit the, turn the fuel on and flip it in an ignition switch, and that's how the car starts. So I'm sitting there getting ready to get pushed off, and I see Bubby Jones coming out of the corner of my eye walking up to the car. I'm thinking to myself, I'm pretty cool. This is role reversal. You know, one of my heroes coming up to see me drive. And he walked up the side of the car, and he looked at me, and he says, what are you doing, Timmy? And I said, well, I got me a ride, Jones. He says, I can see that. What are you going to do now? And I said, what should I look for out there, Bub? He said, Timmy, you learn to start this bitch up, you'll be doing real good. He says, I'm going to go up in the hill and watch this. And I went, wow. And he left. <laughs> and the car owner was an older gentleman. He poked his head in a cockpit and he looked at me and he said, he pointed to the car next to us, another a guy that had been racing for a long time, was right next to me getting ready to get pushed off. And he said, son, he said, racing's a piss poor way to make a living. He said, that guy next to you has been doing it most of his life, and he ain't got a pot to piss in. He said, so just go out there, have some fun, and don't kill yourself. And I went, oh, my word. I remember I spun out qualifying. I was sitting in a mud puddle. I spun down off the track, and uh, I could hear the announcer for the first time say, we just find out who's driving that car number 16. That's Tim Coffeen. I went, oh, my word. I was so embarrassed. But when I got back to the pit, uh, Bubby and – Chassis went down and talked to this guy, and they told him uh, 
put a lower gear in the car, which would make it easier to drive for me, drive the car more as a throttle, put a little more stagger in it. And I ran the heat, and I'll never forget, before they shoved me off for my first race, I had qualified second slowest, the one lap I did get in mm. of all the cars that were there. And so that, they inverted the fields. So the slower guys were in the front of the preliminary races. And I was starting outside front row. And the pit steward walked up and he said, they say this is the first time you've ever driven a race car. Is that true? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're starting in the back. You can't start in the front the first time you ever drive a race. And Bubby Jones is standing there and he goes, no, nah, that ain't happening. He says, he wants to drive. He's, he's going to go where he's assigned, where they say he qualified. He ain't going to the back. He's starting in the front row. And uh, I did. I started. I got beaten the first turn by the guy next to me, and a couple more guys got by me. But as the race went along, I started getting a little rhythm. Maybe I needed a rabbit. Guys running next to me, I kind of figured out how to pick the throttle up, and I started getting a little rhythm going. But the biggest thing, I think, that helped me that night was when Steve Chassie said, come here with me, and he took me up on the hill outside of turn four. And they run in sprint car racing, sometimes they run what they call a trophy dash. They take the four fastest qualifiers, and they run a three- or four-lap race. It's just for show, really. And uh, we, he took me up on the hill for the trophy dash, and he asked me, he says, where do you think you're getting on the throttle at? And I said, right there. And he goes, no, you're not. He says, I tell you what you do. He says, you're starting outside front row. I mean, the outside of the track, getting in turn one is the fastest part. So if you beat that guy in the corner, you're going to be leading. He says, don't wait for him. Just go for it. If they don't throw the green flag, don't worry about it. You'll get a second chance. So I did. I mean, I beat the guy in the corner. And I'll never forget, I got through turn one and two. And as I came out you know, off of turn two, I said to myself, if I get through three and four, I said, I'll be leading her. I'll be leading a race the first night I ever drove a sprint car. I'll never <laughs> forget that. I led four or five laps, and they had a yellow flag. They had a restart, and I led another lap or two. And Bloomington doesn't have a wall. I got up on the edge of the track, and a couple guys got by me. And I think I ran third. I didn't transfer to the main event. But I remember pulling back into the pits after that. My friends were just so – I mean, it was a, one of the greatest experiences of my life. My friend Bobby Graham, he was – jumped on side of the car before I ever stopped and was pounding me on the back, telling me I did a good job. And Bubby winked at me, which was a lot for him. Like I said, it, it was just uh, to be 25 years old. And there's always that little bit of doubt. And you said, you know, can I do this? And to know that I, I went out there and drove a car and, and led a sprint car race. It was just the uh, first night I did it. It was, it was one of the greatest nights of my life. And do you recall, was there any monetary reward for your finish? Uh, the car probably made $20, but I, mean, <laughs> I didn't even ask the guy for any money. Um, I was thrilled to have a ride, and uh, so there was no, there wasn't any money in it. <laughs> well, you eventually, Tim, managed to have your own car and trailer. How did you fund that as a young guy? Well, in 1980, uh, Bob Gummery, the older guy that let me drive that car, I just told the story about. He let me drive that car in 1979 and 1980 a little bit, about four or five times. You're never going to learn anything running a couple times a year. You got to race a lot. And uh, in 1980, 
I went to work at, at Patrick Racing on, as an any car mechanic on John Cox car. George Bignotti hired me and he gave me 250 bucks a week. So that was $180 after taxes. And I was bound and determined to buy my own car so I could race. Uh, and when I wanted to, when I had the time to do it. So towards the end of the season in 1980, I'd saved $2,500. A, a guy in Indianapolis that had a really nice race car, um, they decided it was a father-son team, Bobby Atkins and his dad called Heater Bob, had a really nice Lloyd Shores chassis. A guy, Mark Bridges, was the chief on the car, John Cox's car, told me, he says, Heater Bob's selling his car. You need to go talk to him. So I went over there, and he said, I want $45, $4,500 with no engine. And I said, wow. And I had saved 2500 bucks. I went out to the Hoosier 100, and I saw a friend of mine named Fred Aiden. He was a Jan Opperman, drove sprint cars for him. Eddie Levitt won the Knoxville Nationals for him. I had worked for Fred, and he was a really good friend of mine. And Fred says, I heard you're getting a race car. And I said, well, I'm trying. He goes, well, what's going on with it? And I said, well, I got an eye on one. He goes, how much is it? I said, 2500 bucks." And Fred says, pulled out his checkbook. He wrote a check for $1,000 and handed it to me. And he said, and this is not a loan. He goes, I know how bad you want to do this, and I want to help you. And he gave me 1000 bucks. Now I got 3500 On Monday, Robin called me up, Miller, and he said, how much money you got for that car? I said, 3500 and they want 4500 Robin said, meet me downtown at the paper, you know, in a couple hours. So I did. Robin had a banker friend on the south side of Indianapolis. We drove to the bank, and we go in, and Robin says, they call me Fino. He says, Fino wants to buy some furniture and a stereo. He needs to borrow $1,000. <laughs> the guy wrote out the deal and gave me a loan for $1,000. So I got my 4500 I bought the car, but it didn't have an engine in it, and that's <laughs> pretty expensive. So it took me a year uh, to build the engine, and and that, and that also with that, I had tremendous amount of help from people. I'd have never done that with it. I mean, I wanted to do it. I thought I'd put my best foot forward, tried really hard, and saved my money and did all that, but I could have never done it with all those, without all those people helping me. They were just – I had racing people – they're a tough breed, uh, but they got big hearts, and uh, I was that's how I got started. But the engine deal took me a whole year to build, and I had a tremendous amount of help getting the engine together. Gary Bettenhausen, he stopped me. I worked for him, and uh, he said to me, I heard you're building a car. I said, yeah, and he goes, how's your engine coming? And I said, well, I got some. I bought some cylinder heads, and I got a front drive, and I got injectors, he said, come down to my house. So I did. He said, first, we got to drink a beer. Well, I was having more than a morning or two. I think Gary and I had a couple beers. And he took me out in the shop. And he says, you got connecting rods? I said, no. He opened up this trunk on the floor. And he counted out seven Carrillo rods, 5.7 length. They were the top of the line to this day. Carrillo rods are, then they're $1,000 a set. Now, Probably 5000 I, I would imagine. But anyway, Gary said they came out of his brother Tony's stock car, and they'd had an engine failure, and one of the rods was damaged. But here's seven good rods. You'd be able to find the eighth somewhere. I'll never forget this. I got in my truck, and I roared up to Jim McQueen, my good friend, uh, mechanical mentor. He, um, he was going to help me build the engine for the car uh, in his shop. 
I ran in the door all excited with a little box with seven connecting rods in it. And Jim said, what are you doing? And I says, Gary Bettenhausen just gave me seven Corolla rods. He said he walked. Jim had a medicine cabinet. He had a, a garage behind his house in Indianapolis where he worked on his race cars at in a neighborhood. And he went over to his garage wall and he had a medicine cabinet. And he opened up that medicine cabinet. It was like a mirror. And he opened the door on the medicine cabinet in the wall. And he took, there was a rod laying on the shelf, and he put it down next in the box with the rest of them. Now you have eight. And he said, those will not be going in in any engine until you get them properly balanced. But that's the kind of people that, uh, I mean, I had just a ton of help and kind-hearted people that I had worked for or that knew me and knew I wanted to do this. And that's pretty much how that race car got built and came together for me. A great story, Tim. And of course, your persistence in pursuing your career has always been admired. How would you define yourself as a driver? Were you successful? Well, I never won a feature, but uh, I mean, I've won a lot of preliminary races and consolation races and things like that. I ran in the top five in races. Like I said, I didn't do it as much as I wanted to. I mean, you got to race a lot to be good. But there was times when I was driving where I, I knew I was doing it right. And I got to run Eldora Speedway, which is a tremendous thrill for me in Ohio. It's a really fast joint. I got to run wing at the Devil's Bowl. That was a big thrill for me. You know, and I got to run the local tracks around Indiana. I mean, in Paragon, Bloomington, Lawrenceburg, Kokomo. It's a real hotbed of sprint car racing. And you're racing with guys that have been, some of them have been doing it 30 years. And, uh, you know, I raced with them, and uh, I was proud of what I did. I didn't do it as much as I wanted to, and I didn't start until I was, you know, like I said, I didn't start driving my own car until I was 29 years old after I'd driven one a couple years earlier, uh, just a you know, few times a year. But I was proud of what I did in the car, and I it, it was not just the driving part, but the responsibility and everything of getting the car to the track taught me an awful lot. And speaking of that, the travel that's involved, the expenses, what's the worst part about being an independent driver? Money. <laughs> um, like today, uh, it seems like most sprint car teams, like my friend Bubby Jones, the uh, last conversation I ever had with him before he passed away, he said, hey, Timmy, says, you know what they call car owners today? I said, no, Bub, tell me. And he said, dad. I went, oh. oh, he says, if dad doesn't own the car, dad has the sponsor. And Bub said, when I raced, there were rides to be had, but you had to win races or you'd get fired. So <laughs> the biggest problem with being an independent guy, um, like I was, I mean, the first year I had my car, I didn't have a shop and I worked on my car in my apartment parking lot. That's where, that was where I worked on it at. I'm not complaining. That's what I wanted to do. And I was one of the, I got to race that car a whole year, a whole summer, and it was one of the greatest years of my life. But uh, it's what I wanted to do. As you look back on that experience, can you name one example that you're most grateful for as a driver? <sighs> the first night I ever did it. I mean, like I, I go back to that. Um, just to just to go out the first night I ever did it and, and lead a race and to know that this is this is something I can do that I've always wanted. And I'm not saying it was it was maybe it was a relief, but 
you know, every time I went to the track, I mean, it, it was, uh, it was something I always dreamed about. And, uh, I don't know, driving a race car for me taught me so much. And it also, the amount of people that helped me, uh, it, it was just a tremendous experience. And it taught me, it probably taught me more than anything I ever did in my life having my own car because it, sure there was a lot of sacrifice and everything, but it was the way people helped me. Uh, if you show the intestinal fortitude, uh, hang around like I did as a kid and I didn't know anybody in racing and then work my way up and people saw that and they helped me. And, uh, so as far as any individual accomplishments, um, the most proud thing is I can say is that I did it and, uh, it taught me an awful lot, not just about racing, but about life. And you've mentioned Bubby Jones uh, a couple of times, not only tonight, but in a previous episode. How did you two gentlemen meet? Well, Bub was a, to me, was a bit of an enigma when I first met him. I saw him racing. He, Bub was one of those guys that he, he was a professional sprint car driver. 99% of drivers in those, that raced on dirt tracks in those days, they all had jobs. They were truck drivers, machinists, auto mechanics. And they would race on weekends. Well, Bubby Jones was a professional race car driver. That's all he ever did. He was a barber when he was really young, but once he started winning races. And Bub wasn't content to just hang around and race locally. He wandered around the country. He loved the challenge of going into a local joint and beating people in their own backyards. He loved that. And I'd seen him a lot of places, and he was hard to get to know. I mean, he wasn't real social. Uh, he was a serious racer. I mean, when he was at the track, he was in his pit all the time. He was measuring tires, working on the car. If he wasn't doing that, the dirt track racing is interesting because the surfaces change so rapidly. I mean, they can get, they can be real tacky one minute and slick off and you got to pay attention to that. It affects everything you do, the tire stagger, the kind of tires you run, the gears you run. And he was just, he, he was just focused on what he was doing. And I, I, uh, I had really had a hard time. I'd say after he won a race, I'd say, good job, Bubby. Well, thanks a lot. And that's about all I got out of him. <laughs> and to be honest with you, the guy that introduced him to me um, was the Eldora Speedway in 1976. I was working with uh, Bettenhausen Racing. Uh, we take a trailer to the races to sell Goodyear tires, and I pump fuel for him and work in the shop, and that was my job. And uh, it was a Sunday race at Eldora. It was a super fast half mile over in uh, Rossburg, Ohio, that Tony Stewart owns now. I walked out of the trailer, uh, Bettenhausen's trailer, and Jan was standing there talking to Bubby. And Jan called me over, and he goes, he goes, Bub, do you know Timmy? He says, stick your paw out. He won't bite you. And Bub laughed, and uh, that, that broke the ice between between me and Bub. Uh, and he started coming around Bettenhausen's shop, and I got to know him a little bit. But the, where, really, where I really got to know him, we were racing the Indy Mile at the State Fairgrounds, a sprint car race uh, in June of 76. Merle Bettenhausen owned the trailer that we took to the races, sell tires and fuels, decided he wasn't going to go to Ohio to the race the next night. And he told Bub, if you want anything for tomorrow night, buy it now. And Bub looked at me and he says, what are you doing tomorrow night? I said, well, I guess I just got the day off. <laughs> and he said, you want to go to Ohio with me? So I got in the truck with him the next day and went to Ohio, and uh, he became, you can use all kinds of words, mentor, uh, friend, coach, whatever. But in the end, he was my, um, 
he built me a race car and gave it to me, a sprint car, after I destroyed one of my cars. And he was just a salty-earth guy. He drove me. He took me to the Indianapolis 500 when he drove there. and I was on his crew. He was one of the best friends I ever had. And uh, he passed away. And he passed away in 2020. And uh, I, miss, I miss him to this day. But he was a huge influence on my life. Would you consider him a uh, a very determined or a hard racer? And how did other racers think about Bubby? Any examples? Uh, well, Bubby Jones was, uh, once you got to know him, I mean, he, one thing I thought was so cool about Bub is a lot of people were intimidated to go into what you would not. I mean, a lot of people just race in the same area all the time. Like I said earlier, Bub. You know, Bub didn't, uh, he didn't particularly want to hang around one track all the time. He like he had wanderlust. He wanted to travel and, and race against the best in their own backyard. And anywhere he went, I noticed about him, the locals all came up and saw him and visited with him. He never had any trouble on the racetrack with anybody. Nobody fooled with him because he would, <laughs> didn't mess with Jones. But uh, the funny story about Bub, uh, he took me to Manzanita with him one year. In fact, him and I drove the truck out there together to race at the Western States Championship. Phoenix, the old Manzanita Speedway, it's gone now, but it was a legendary track outside uh, 35th Avenue and Broadway in Phoenix. And every October, they had what they, they would call the Western States Championship at Manzanita, and it would draw up to 150 cars. And I mean, cars would come from Pennsylvania to race there and uh, California, the Midwest, uh, wherever, but... Uh, Bub and I drove over there and and uh, rolled the car out to, and you get like I said you got to have a truck push you off and he climbed in the car and got belted in and put his helmet on and a guy named Kenny Weld he was from a racing family uh, in Kansas City and he was a legendary guy his brother Greg was a fantastic race driver drove in the Indy 500 won a ton of sprint car races but Kenny had been racing in Pennsylvania and I knew because Bub had told me previously that he had never met Kenny Weld and Kenny Wells walks out to the car before Bubs gets pushed off and he's just standing next to the right next to the car I mean almost in the cockpit with Bub looking down at him and I said what is this about and Bub looked up at him and says what's going on and Kenny Weld says I just thought I'd walk out here and see if your balls are as big as everybody says they are <laughs> he turned around and walked away and Jones looked at me and he goes, I like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent story, Tim. And when you were working the back roads, and, and I was kind of kidding and talking about flying all over the world, but I know travel was tough when you got that determination to make it to the top of your occupation. Are there any funny travel stories or unique travel stories that you recall from those early days? Well, uh, this story is probably, uh, it, it was one of the wildest stories that ever happened to me in my life. Uh, wildest experiences I had, I should say. Um, I was, I told you I worked at Patrick Racing in 1980 and we ran at Ontario Speedway on Labor Day, 1980. It was the last California 500, uh, Ontario was this big two-and-a-half-mile over carbon copy of Indianapolis, but unfortunately, right after that race, they, 
they tore it down. So it was the last race. It's Labor Day. And I, one of my jobs, in addition to working as a mechanic on John Cox's car, was I had to drive the semi. I had to help drive the semi to and from the races. So uh, the other driver, Johnny Caples Jr., the son of a, a legendary IndyCar mechanic, was driving the truck, and I was in the back in the sleeper. And we came to the port of entry at Arizona-California border. And you got to take your papers in to Arizona, you know, to pass through the the port of entry. So he got out of the truck to take the papers in, and I was in the sleeper. I had a pair of cut-off jeans, cut-off Levi's, and a pair of thongs on, no shirt. I was in, I decided I had to go to the bathroom. So I got out of the truck, and I went into the way station, used the restroom. I came out. The Patrick Semi was gone. I went, oh, my word, he drove away, you know, and I was in the – I was in the way station. I ran over. There was another trucker there, a Pacific Intermountain Express pie truck. I remember I yelled up to him. I said, would you call on your CB down the road, that Patrick racing truck, tell him they left the co-driver at the way station? He did. No answer. And I was just, I'm standing there. I got no wallet. It was in the sleeper. I got no shirt on. And I'm, I'm at the California, Arizona border. I had family in Phoenix, but I mean, nobody's going to pick me up hitchhiking if I don't have a shirt on. So a guy comes out of the way station. He goes, Hey, I just got off work. He says, uh, I heard your call. It came over the CB inside in the way station. He says, Get in the car. And he had an old Vega. I remember he had that thing running down hills 100 miles an hour. The fenders are flapping on this old car. But we crested. Uh, we crested a hill, and at the bottom of this valley, there was the Patrick Racing Semi, and an Arizona Highway Patrolman had pulled him over for speeding with the gunball machines running by, flashing behind the truck. And I was so angry when I jumped out of that car and ran up to the truck. The trooper saw me coming, and he started to un unbuckle his gun. He says, who are you? Stop right where you're at. And I said, I'm the co-driver. And he looked at Cables and he says, I thought you said he was in the sleeper. And he goes, I, I, I thought he was. <laughs> and uh, we didn't speak all the way back to Indianapolis. And uh, But I'm, that was one of the craziest things that ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> Another great anecdote, Tim. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, compared to sprint cars, can you compare a sprint car competition with IndyCar how did the, the different teams function, and how did the fans react? Or is racing racing? No, well, racing's racing, but sprint cars are sprint cars used to be the road to Indianapolis. I mean, when I was a kid, all the great race car drivers came from most of them. I mean, in the '60s, you got the influx of uh, when the rear engine cars came to Indy. You know, a lot of foreigners came uh, from Formula One and sports cars and things like that. But as a kid, um, all the all the great race car drivers, Foyt and Parnelli Jones and Jimmy Bryan and Tony Buttonhausen, they're all midget and sprint car guys. That's no longer the road to Indianapolis because the cars now are, are uh, rear engine, the technology. They still race sprint cars and midgets, obviously, but it seems that a lot of the great sprint and midget guys today end up in NASCAR if they're really super talented. Uh, the cars, are, they're just so different. I mean, a sprint car is an upright, Front engine car, tubular frame, solid axles. Uh, they got a ton of horsepower. Those things, uh, World Outlaw cars now, those wing cars, they're pushing almost a thousand horsepower and they weigh what, 1400 pounds? The horsepower to weight is astronomical. 
but it's so different. I mean, uh, the the technology on the cars like Indy cars today is just night and day different than sprint cars. Not saying that sprint car guys, uh, if they didn't have the proper training, but I mean, guys that race in Europe and sports cars and rear engine cars, uh, they got vast amount of experience and similar equipment to what they run in Indy cars and sprint car midget guys don't. So I don't think that sprint car midget guys are any less talented. But I remember what Johnny Rutherford said when they asked him about sprint car racing. Johnny Rutherford said sprint cars may not teach you to drive an Indy car, but they'll show, they'll sure teach you how to be a race driver. Sprint car racing is giddy up and go, as Bobby Unzer used to say. It it's the most exciting racing there is, I think. You know, any local dirt track, I mean, they put on a heck of a show. And I'll tell you what, in this day and age, uh, you look at a lot of the big NASCAR races and IndyCar races, and those grandstands are spotty. They're not full. You go to your local dirt tracks around the country, and they're full of capacity. Uh, short track fans. Randy Barnard was running the IndyCar series. Robin Miller took him to the Kokomo Speedway one night. Randy didn't know much about racing. He came from the rodeo. And they hired him to try and turn IndyCar racing around as he was a really smart businessman. And they were at Kokomo Speedway, and Randy Bernard was said to Robin, he goes, every single person here has a driver's T-shirt on. And Robin said, that's what's missing in IndyCar. You know, you got to – so race, racing fans are super passionate. But short track American, like sprint car guys or midgets, uh, it's a hotbed of racing. It remains that way today. I don't think the passion will ever go away. Um, how about the drivers in sprint cars? Were they uh, meaner, tougher, or any dirty tricks you experienced? Uh, I mean, sprint car drivers are, I mean, they got a ton of intestinal fortitude. Like I said earlier, those cars are a tremendous amount of horsepower. Um, but sprint car drivers, to me, um, I just, I don't know. They, they did, <laughs> To watch one of those cars whistle around a half mile, uh, track like Knoxville, Iowa, full throttle. There's nothing like it in the world. Uh, this guy's got a tremendous amount of talent, and it's uh, – I'm not going to dwell on the danger, but it's there. And uh, and when you get to know these guys, a lot of them on the exterior, they appear, appear to be gruff and that kind of stuff. But uh, they're family guys, and uh, sprint car racing to me is the people – the people is what makes it special. And the guys that drive those things, uh, sprint car racing is, is there's nothing like it on the planet. And that's where I came from. And I'll always have a soft spot in my heart. And, and to this day, a lot of the people that are my closest friends uh, for over 50 years, I, I met in sprint car racing. So, Tim, based on your experience in sprint car, do you think that experience helped or hindered you as you made the big move to IndyCar competition? Was, you know, sprint car racing, uh, I mean, it's, it's dog eat dog world and, uh, you go to the track and I mean, it's a lot of work and racing is, uh, it's, it's got to stay focused on what you're doing. And if what I learned from sprint car racing, uh, it taught me basically what I knew when you go to Indy car racing, it's a whole different animal. When big naughty hired me, he interviewed me and, uh, he said, I know what you've done. I know you've worked with Opperman and Bubby Jones. He says, I'm going to tell you something right now. He says, sprint car racing is fun, and this is a business. And I went, wow. 
But what I had learned in sprint car racing, the basics and everything, uh, that's what I was. And uh, having my own car probably taught me more than anything, uh, the responsibility. If you got to be responsible for putting the car together, towing it to the track, unloading it, um, the fun starts, Bukovic, Billy Bukovic used to say, the fun starts when the engine starts up. Because it's a lot of work to get it there. But, uh, yeah, sprint car racing taught me, and that's you know that's where I came from, and, and I'm proud of it. And what made you finally give up that time in sprint car, and specifically as a driver? Did you know it was time, or did something better come up, Tim? Well... At the end of 1988, I was working at Machinist Union. I'd been there six years, and, and I was getting to race sprint cars 10, 12 times a year because I was always going at IndyCar races or tests, and I was frustrated. We never won a race, and I wanted to win a, a damn race. And uh, <laughs> I'd watch Michael Andretti uh, at Qualified Milwaukee. And the Hillmore Chevy was the dominant engine then. Penske and Patrick and all of them had that engine. Mario had one. With, with uh, Newman Haas, and Michael was driving for Craco, and they had the old Cosworth engine. It was an older, much older engine. And I stood on a pit wall and watched him qualify at Milwaukee, and he hauled that thing in the corner on the rev limiter. He was fastest qualifier with this obsolete engine, and I went, holy cow. And then I think he won a race at the end of the year, a Marlboro Challenge in the rain down at, uh, uh, not in Homestead, Florida, but uh, Tamiami Park in Florida. I was frustrated, and I wanted to win an IndyCar race as a team member. I heard at the end of the year that Michael was going to go join his dad at Newman Haas. And two guys that I had worked with previously and were friends of mine, Joe Flynn and Alec Greaves, both worked at Newman Haas. And they both called me, and they said, you call and get an interview and come up here and go because you'll get to work on Michael's car. And I thought he was the fastest guy in the series and I said to myself, you know, even if it's for a year, I'm going to go up there and I want to work on a team that wins a race, and then I can come back and run Paragon, Bloomington, and do what I want to do. And that's what happened. I went to work at Newman Austin with no intention of being there forever. But uh, and we uh, won two races that year, and we had some really distant. We were leading Indianapolis uh, uh, and the engine blew coming down the front straightaway. Uh, and, but we we got we you could feel the team coming together and we were third in the points that year and the next year 1990 he won five races uh, lost a wheel bearing in the 500 but uh we we finished second in the points to Allenser Jr. and then in 1991 but I got caught up being on a team and I it, a bunch of I could feel the momentum building and I was part of something my ra- I was thirty. I was thirty six years old when I went to Newman Haas, and I wasn't a spring chicken anymore. And um, uh, to be honest with you, I, Newman Haas was a different adventure for me. But everything that I had done previously kind of took me to that point and made that opportunity happen for me. I wouldn't change anything now. I mean, I wish I could have run more sprint car races, but winning championships up there, and uh, I mean, we were. We had a really, really good racing team, and I, some of my most, my closest um, friends in life are still my buddies from Newman Haas that I was in the trenches with all those years. Um, is an experience I wouldn't trade for anything, but it just came to a point in, in my life when I was 36 years old, and they called me, and I said, this kid's going to win some races, and I know it, and I want to win some races, and uh, so I made a decision to go up there. I didn't come back. 
So that's what happened. I never said I quit racing sprint cars, but it just didn't, <laughs> you know, I, um, I wanted to be on a winning IndyCar team and things, things happened from there. It seems like they worked out very, very well. And one more question, Tim. If there was anyone from your sprint car days that, or others, maybe a couple of people that you'd like to just talk to today, who would they be? Oh, boy. Wow. Uh, I mean, guys that just, I mean, go back to Bubby Jones and Jan Opperman. Man, I think about those two guys every day. Uh, Jim McQueen. Uh, he did so much for me. I worked for a Texan in Longhorn Racing called Donnie Ray Everett. Jerry Franklin was a friend of mine that ran Halibrand when he came to Indy. He, I would have never raced sprint cars. Uh, I crashed my car really bad one time, and he helped me. Um, Roger Beck's still alive, uh, but he's uh, he, he did so much for me. I mean, I just made so many friends that uh, Eamon Full of Love, he helped me. Davey Flick. You know, Robin Miller supported me. Sammy Swindell helped me. Uh, Doug Wolfgang. I had just a ton of friends that Le- I, Ronnie Schumann, uh, Leland McSpadden from Arizona. I just saw him a couple weeks ago. Um, these guys are lifelong friends. I mean, you might be in the trenches at, uh, competing against them one moment, but all right, after the race, you drink a beer with them. I mean, that's just the way racers are. And, uh, Rod Albright, uh, he was, he's, to this day, 50 years after I met him, Jan Opperman introduced us. Rod and I stay in touch. Uh, we always seemed, always seemed when we raced across the country that we always ended up together. And He's been one of my best friends for 50 years. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Donald Wilson. I uh, went to high school with Donald. Uh, we were race fans together as young kids. When I got a sprint car, a lot of nights, uh, Donald and I were there to get her at the track alone, and he was always at my side there and night I won the first heat race and B main was on the same night and it was just Donald and uh, Donald was a good friend and he was always there for me. Uh, Bettenhausen brothers, Gary, Merle, Tony, uh, I was sleeping in my station wagon and when they hired me and uh, took me in, taught me, uh, gave me the opportunities after a couple of weeks there, Gary told Merle to caught me coming out of the shower downstairs and uh, asked me where I lived and I said in the parking lot in my car and he told Merle to give me the keys to the shop I hadn't stolen anything yet so he trusted me and told me to take my mattress and stay upstairs and it's just people like that in racing that uh just treated me so good over the years and I'm golly I just I've had a tremendous uh my life has been blessed to know these guys and I think about some of them that aren't here anymore. I think about them every damn day. But uh, I wouldn't change anything I did in my life. I'm just, like I said before, I've been blessed. And a wonderful career. And we, we thank you again. And on behalf of the Sports History Network, Tim, thank you for your time again today. And we certainly look forward to your next episode. Anything you'd like to add today, Tim? Uh, no, i just like to say thanks. Um, I, I'm enjoying doing this and, uh, it's getting to talk about what I've done in my life that people think it's worth hearing about. It's a real, real uplifting experience for me. I'm enjoying it and I hope people that are listening are, and will keep listening. And yeah, I just like to say thank you. Tim, it's, uh, like I said, greatly appreciated. And for those of you who are listening, please go to the sportshistorynetwork.com site. 
Sign up for the free subscription to Tim's podcast, and you'll get automatically notified when a new one has arrived. Thank you, everyone. Until next time, see you later. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.